Please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 3. Most of you have one of the sermon cards that we publish three months at a time. We'll have the next one available next week for the rest of the year. But what that means is it's possible that you came to church today knowing you were going to hear a sermon on a genealogy. And so I want to say thank you for coming. And to those of you who saw that and considered not coming because of that, there's still time to repent. Uh, but it's also possible that you walked in today not knowing you were going to hear a sermon on a genealogy, and now you know. And I pray that it will be encouraging. Uh, a pastor in Alabama named Scott Sleeton once wrote, In a culture accustomed to an endless stream of entertainment, a sermon on a genealogy surely must rank alongside a root canal or a trip to the DMV on the last day of the month. So you're in for a treat today. But there are two verses before the genealogy that are full of, uh, of theological importance for us, and hopefully this sermon will help you understand why we have genealogies in the first place, what they teach us about God, and, and so helpful, hopefully it will help you read the Bible better uh, from here on. So I'm going to read this passage, Luke chapter 3, verse 21, and I'll read all the way down through verse 38. Please follow along. And as I read the genealogy, I encourage you to look for familiar names. Okay, there are other ways you can listen as well, but I encourage you to listen for familiar names from this genealogy. Verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, With you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sereg, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. In 1912, Theodore Roosevelt was running for his third presidency, and he failed miserably. And that was unusual for him. He wasn't used to losing anything. He was used to working really hard, 
and getting what he worked for as a result and celebrating it. But when he didn't get his way, he tended to kind of go into isolation in some way and think about um, you know, something that would distract him, basically. And so he would kind of throw himself into some kind of adventure. And so after losing the 1912 election to Woodrow Wilson by a pretty good landslide, he uh, decided to go on an expedition. And he wanted to do something that wasn't just typical, you know, let's go off to a safari. Everybody does that, he would think. Let's do something that no one's ever done before. So he decided to uh, schedule a trip down to the Amazon River in that region of the world. And uh, he decided to uh, delegate the preparation for that to a friend of his named Father Zom, who was a Catholic priest. And Father Zom then decided to start recruiting people to go on this trip and to help prepare for it. And Theodore Roosevelt said, okay, well, you guys get the trip ready. I'm going out to go cougar hunting in Arizona. So he went and did that. Uh, while Father Zom started taking care of details here at home. And so let me pick up where the story uh, kind of really gets exciting to me anyway. I hope you follow along well and enjoy this. This is, this is from a book by Candace Millard called The River of Doubt. It is an outstanding book. Like, this is the kind of book that's going to keep you awake if you're reading it at night, and we all need those kinds of books in our lives. So this is uh, from The River of Doubt. Father Zahm was now faced with the job of turning his dream of going to South America into reality. Looking for assistance, he headed to the sporting goods section of Rogers, Pete, and Company, the New York City department store, and fell into conversation with the head sporting goods clerk, a man named Anthony Fiala. On the strength of Fiala's evident interest in exploration, Father Zahm wasted no time in inviting him to join the Roosevelt Party, quickly delegating the logistical burdens of the trip by placing his new friend in charge of selecting and ordering the expedition's provisions and equipment. As convenient as it may have seemed to Zam, however, the selection of Fiala as the expedition's quartermaster was less than auspicious for the expedition as a whole. For while the 44-year-old clerk did indeed have a background in exploration, the details of that experience arguably made him the last person on earth to be entrusted with the planning or provisioning of a scientific expedition. Despite his current job as a department store clerk, nearly every explorer at the turn of the 20th century knew who Anthony Fiala was. Indeed, his story was a cautionary tale of what can happen when an expedition goes terribly wrong and his commander survives to face derision from his peers and exclusion from his profession. Ten years earlier, Fiala, tall and thin with a prominent nose and a small angular face, had been in a high-stakes race with an elite group of men for one of history's greatest geographical prizes, the North Pole. Fiala's first trip to the Arctic had been as the photographer for one expedition in 1901. When that expedition failed to reach the pole, its leader was fired, and Fiala was promoted from photographer to commander of a second expedition in 1903. The renamed expedition never made it farther north than 82 degrees. Its ship, crushed in the Arctic ice, sank, and Fiala and his men, out of the reach of rescue ships, were stranded on the icy north for two excruciating years. On Fiala's orders, the expedition's provisions were bundled together for safekeeping on the ice, which gave way one night as Fiala and his 38 men slept. They awakened in horror to find half of their food supply and all of their coal lost. Only the discovery of supplies from another expedition kept the entire party from perishing. Back in New York, Fiala had had to face his fellow explorers' brutal assessment of his leadership skills. They wasted no time on sympathy, on hearing details about the expedition, one person ex- exoriated him as 
exhoriated the journey as an ill-conceived, badly managed, undisciplined venture, and his commander as utterly incompetent. Fiala may well, one person wrote, may be a fairly good cook, but not a leader of men. It was clear that no one would be sending Anthony Fiala on another expedition anytime soon. When Father Zom happened into Rogers Pete a decade later looking for supplies for his trip with Roosevelt, his story of an impending journey into the Amazonian jungle tapped a wellspring of hope in Fiala. I would give anything in the world to go with you, he told Zom. Had Roosevelt been concerned about the trip he was about to take, he certainly would have hesitated to hire a man whose sole exploring experience had been in the Arctic, a region that had almost nothing in common with the Amazon, and who, while there, had led his men to a disaster, a disaster of legendary proportions. But given Zom's enthusiasm about Fiala, Roosevelt, almost in passing, agreed to hire him, not merely as an extra hand, but as the man in charge of equipping the entire expedition. Let me just say, this is just the beginning of an outstanding story. I hope you'll pick it up at the library or borrow my copy. Great story. But what it sounds like to me is that you have somebody who's not qualified to do his job. Maybe we could put it this way. If you need to hire an electrician, you're not going to hire somebody who's from a tribal village where they don't have electricity, right? He's not going to be qualified to do the job. You're not going to hire a roofer who's afraid of getting on your roof because he's afraid of heights. Like you find someone who's qualified to do a certain job, not just throw any old person in there to do the job. And here we have these, these guys throwing in somebody who's totally unqualified, totally incompetent to do his job. But the problems before us, the problem facing us, is not that we need to get to the Arctic. We need to get to the North Pole before somebody else does. We need somebody else to get us there. Our problem is so much bigger than the problem I just read to you. Our problem is that we have spiritual needs. Our problem is that we are sinners and we need someone who can get us to God. Far more important than getting us to the North Pole. So who is qualified to do that? Well, it would take the Son of God to do that. And that's what this passage provides for us, is the solution to our spiritual problems in a person, the person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. This passage that I've read a few moments ago, verse 21 through verse, 20, verse, through verse 38, tells us that Jesus is the Son of God. And as such, He is uniquely qualified to offer salvation to all humanity. And so maybe as you listen to me read that lengthy genealogy a moment ago, you would ask, well, how in the world are you getting from that passage that this story is about Jesus being the Son of God? And I want to show you, okay? So... If you look at your Bible, I hope you have it open in front of you. In verse 21, actually right at the end of verse 22, I mean to say, the quotation, you are my beloved son. So there's one example. Then you work your way down to verse 38, to the end of the genealogy. We read the words, the son of God. So here we, we're at least talking about the son of God. We need to narrow in on exactly what this is talking about. Then look at verse 3. Skip over the chapter marks here, verse Chapter 4, verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, this is the passage we'll look at next week. And then verse 9, say, and again saying, if you are the Son of God. So Luke is taking these, these stories and combining them. Again, you need to skip over the chapter and verse divisions in your Bibles as being basically irrelevant except for us knowing what page to be on when we're reading it together. 
and see, okay, clearly Luke here is structuring these stories back to back so that we're focusing on the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And now we want to ask the question, what does it mean that he is the Son of God? Or we could say, in what way is he the Son of God? And this passage would give us at least two ways. Would, would give us exactly two ways. The first is that Jesus is the divine Son of God. And this is what we're going to see in verses 21 and 22. And then in the, the genealogy, we'll focus on the fact that Jesus is the human Son of God. So looking at verse 21 once again. When all the people were baptized, which takes us back to the previous passage where John the Baptist has come out into the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord to come. And he does so in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, which we looked at last week. And he baptizes people who are repentant, who are turning to God to prepare for the coming of the Messiah, saying they want to be ready for his coming. And uh, in baptizing them, they are, they are exhibiting hearts of repentance, which we focused on specifically last week, the doctrine of repentance. And then we see that Jesus himself was also baptized. Now, why in the world would Jesus be baptized? He's not a, a sinner like those people were. And this passage doesn't actually tell us anything about that. Luke, for his purpose, just says that's not significant to what I'm trying to tell you. But we know Matthew tells us that, that Jesus told John the Baptist, I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And maybe one way to put this, because even that, you know, Scholars could disagree on exactly what that means. One way to put this is that in his baptism, Jesus is identifying with those who were baptized before him. He's showing those people are trying to come to me. I am, I am essentially showing myself that I am united to them. I am uh, open to them. I am uh, you know, on the same plane as them. Maybe we could, we could put it that way. So he's identifying with the people who are being baptized. So Jesus also had been baptized and from comparing this passage with the one in Matthew and in Mark and in John, it appears that Jesus has now come out of the water and now he's praying on the side of the shore of the Jordan River, a murky, ugly, muddy river, and he's praying. And what we see in the Gospel of Luke, as we'll see repeatedly over the next many months, is that when something significant happens, typically praying is going on as well. And this is what we see here. Jesus himself is praying, and it appears he's praying aloud. And while he's praying, three events happen. So look at your Bible and see if you can identify what those three events are, what those three details that happened were. The first one is that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, I'm sorry, I, I missed one. The heavens were opened. The heavens were opened. That's the first of these events. And this seems to be an allusion to Isaiah 64, which I'll read just very briefly, just, just one part of a verse here. Isaiah 64, verse 1, it says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. So the skies are open, the heavens are opened. That's number one. Secondly, the Holy Spirit descended and in the shape of a, of a dove. And why in the world would the Holy Spirit come with in the shape of a dove, well, um, this doesn't happen anywhere else in the Bible. So we really just have to ask questions about what a dove is like and where else doves are mentioned in the Bible. And what we see is that Jesus himself said that we should be harmless as doves. And so there's kind of a peaceable nature to doves. They, uh, they kind of convey a sense of gentleness. And essentially that seems to be what's, what the connection here is. 
that there is a, a spirit of gentleness and humility and peaceableness about both the Holy Spirit and about Christ himself, who defined himself as being gentle and lowly, like a dove is gentle and lowly. So the heavens were opened, a dove descended, and then the third really significant, I would say the most significant of these three, is that you hear a voice. A voice came from heaven, clearly God's voice. And from passages like the one we read as the call to worship today, you really have to wonder what this voice sounded like, probably a thundering sound of God the Father speaking. And that's significant, but what's super significant is what he actually says And what the Father says, what God the Father says here in verse 22 is that he quotes two Old Testament passages. God the Father himself is affirming the truthfulness of previous scriptures. And so the first one is, you are my beloved son. And that should sound to you a lot like Psalm 2, which is quoted throughout the New Testament as being about Christ. Now, in its initial statement in Psalm 2, it's about David. It's probably at his coronation as the king of Israel. And so to be the son meant that you're like the, the most important in Israel in that situation. Then we find out that Solomon is a son of God, the, the next son of David. And we find out that Israel itself is a son of God. Here we see that Adam is a son of God. But to say that, that, um, that Jesus is the beloved son is God alluding back to Psalm 2. And there's this messianic hope then from Psalm 2 on that there would be this one who would come and be the true fulfillment of the expectation of God's Son. And what we find elsewhere in Psalm 2, just a few verses after that, is that the Son will come and rule with a rod of iron. And this is another way we see that that the New Testament authors picked up on that psalm as being very significant, as being messianic in other words. And what it's saying is that Jesus himself is the one who ruled with a rod of iron. We see this in Revelation 12 and in Revelation 19, that Christ is this one who rules, who is the the holy judge. And so this, this quotation is from Psalm 2, You are my beloved Son. And the second line, with you I am well pleased, that seems to be an allusion to the passage we read earlier, or, or that Michael read so well for us earlier from Isaiah 42, My chosen in whom my soul delights. So this phrase here in in Luke 3, with you I am well pleased, seems to be quoting Isaiah 42, verse 1, in whom my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And what's remarkable is the very next line of Isaiah 42 says, I have put my spirit upon him, which is referring back to that dove that has just descended just before the voice was heard. And so what we see in in reading this passage that Jesus is the divine Son of God, is that we need to read this passage in light of what we've read in Luke before this. So we saw back in Luke 1.35 that Jesus would be the Son of the Most High, he'd be the Holy Son of God himself. We saw in Luke 2.11 that, uh, let me just read, read this here, there's this expectation that the Son who would be born is from God, is himself the Savior, is the Messiah. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He is is the Son of God. He is coming to be the Savior. Then you also read in chapter 2, verse 49. Remember that Jesus went into uh, the temple and his parents eventually found him there. And they said, what are you doing here? And he said, don't you know I need to be about my father's business in my father's house? 
And they looked at him and said, no, this is Joseph. He's your father. And Jesus is saying, no, this is my father. God is the father, is my father. And so what we see here is that we're, we need to read this passage that Jesus is the divine son of God in light of previous passages in Luke. But we also need to read it in light of verse uh, 22 here, in light of uh, the whole Old Testament. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament expectations. When people listened to the prophecy that there would be a son from the throne of David, this is who that is talking about. The whole Old Testament is looking forward to that, and Christ is here claiming that as being describing of himself, describing himself. And so we need to read this passage in light of the whole Old Testament, that all of the Old Testament is looking forward to a day when a Savior would come and rule over the world, and Jesus says, that's me. You don't need to wait any longer. I have come. Of course, we also need to read this passage in light of the whole New Testament. The Gospel of John particularly hammers home the fact that Christ is the divine Son of God. We heard in Sunday school today about our triune God and how Jesus himself is God then, is an individual in the Trinity, one of the, one, one of the individuals within the triune Godhead. And um, so you think about like John 1, 1, John 20, 28, 1 John 5, 20, Titus 2.13, Romans 9.5. If somebody wants to say, no, I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, go to any of those passages. Those are like the crystal clearest of the clear. And then we can go to a whole lot more as well. But you can start there with those, with those passages. So we need to read this passage in light of the whole New Testament as well as in light of what came before it in Luke and in light of what came before it in the Old Testament. Jesus is the divine Son of God. That's what verses 21 and 22 teach us. And what we need to be clear about is that Jesus didn't become the Son of God when the Holy Spirit descended on him. This is what um, heretical theologians refer to as adoptionist Christology, where Jesus becomes the Son of God when the Holy Spirit descends on him. And clearly, this is not what's happening here. What's happening here in the, in the Holy Spirit descending is God declaring that he is his Son, not adopting him as his Son. It's kind of like when you, when you have a book, and this one I have doesn't have it on it, but if you have a book that has a sticker on the front, that says, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, that sticker is declaring this book is worthwhile. It's making a statement about the book. And what God is doing is saying, this is my beloved son, is not adopting Jesus to be a son. He's making a statement about his son. He's saying, this person deserves your attention. Listen to him, is what is essentially implied. And so now looking at verses 23 through 38, we also see, besides Jesus being the divine Son of God, we also see that Jesus is the human Son of God. And what we see here is, <clears throat> is this genealogy that takes us all the way through uh, human history to this point, basically, and goes back to Adam. The, the genealogy in Matthew starts with Abraham and works its way down to Jesus. This is kind of going up or, or backwards, we could say, in human history linking Jesus to Adam, ultimately, showing his humanity. And I think there's two reasons he's doing that. One is because, as we talked about last week, Luke is written not just to Jewish people, but to say that Jesus came to rescue all people, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so by linking him to Adam, he's saying Jesus is the God of all humanity. So this is not just an ethnic God. You should, you should worship him. You should listen to him if you're a Jewish person. No, you are a person. You come from Adam too. So give your attention to Jesus. 
The second reason I think he ends with Adam, rather than going the other way around from Adam down to Jesus, is to set us up for our passage next week, in which Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. So he's being tempted like Adam, in the wilderness like Israel. And how did Jesus come through that temptation? We'll see that next week in in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. But when you read a genealogy like this, let me give you three, uh, three ways to think about genealogies when you read them. Because, you know, if you're reading through, say, First Chronicles, you're going to come to these, and you're going to have to work through them because they're part of the Bible. And we give every passage weight because it's breathed out by God. So we don't want to just skip over it. You know, when I told someone I was preaching on a genealogy, they jokingly said, you know, you could have just jumped over that. Uh, you know, just gone on to chapter 4. I don't think so. I don't think so. This is, this is God's Word as well. And it's here importantly, for both historical and theological reasons. So I told you as I read the genealogy aloud to listen for familiar sounding names. So this is the part of the show, so to speak, uh, where you can give feedback. So what names stood out to you as I read the genealogy aloud? They sounded familiar because you read them in the Bible before. Okay, so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the three, you know, fathers of the nation of Israel. Very good. Thank you, Pam. Someone else? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Okay, very good. So that takes you back to the high priesthood in Israel. Uh, Michael, who'd you have? Uh, Boaz, Jesse, and David. Okay, so that takes us back to Israel's sermon a couple weeks ago. Uh, Boaz here and his significant part in this, in this family line and our, the significance of the book of Ruth really coming back to the forefront there. Some, uh, and you mentioned David there. So essentially we see... Remember that, that God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made a covenant with the nation of Israel. That's not exactly alluded, here, uh, alluded to here. It's certainly implied. He made a covenant with Noah. He's mentioned here. You all recognize that name. He made a covenant with David. You all recognize that name. He made a covenant with Adam, implicitly, uh, in Scripture. And the, he's mentioned here. So we see like the big heavy hitters of the Old Testament all listed here tying us to them and them to Jesus. And uh, again, I think this ends with Adam for the reasons I mentioned earlier about all of humanity coming to Christ and setting us up for the passage next week. But he mentions these links to, to David and Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob and, and all the way back to Adam to show that you know, these, again, are the most important people in the Old Testament, we could say, And they're all linked back to Christ. Christ is fulfilling the expectations of all of those people. So these genealogies are included for historical and theological reasons. The second truth to remember as you read genealogies is that they show the importance of normal, everyday sinners and God's delight in using them. So think about the number of people in this list here who you've never heard of before. We've just talked about all the heavy hitters. There's a whole lot of people who are mentioned zero times anywhere else in the Bible. I mean, how, how much can we know about this guy named Salah or Nashon? I mean, we could go on and on with these individuals who we know nothing about. Why are they here? What do we know about them? We know they are sinners, probably everyday people, just like you and me, and that God used them to bring about redemption, to bring about the most important event in human history, bringing the incarnation of Jesus uh, to to earth. And so think now about what it took for God to bring each of these people through their lives to the point then that the genealogy could be carried on. All right? All of these people, every one of them lived in a day when there was 
terrible medical care by today's standards. Think about how many people would have died in childbirth if we didn't have things like C-sections. And I don't know if you would die if you don't have an epidural, but it's probably nice for most people to have one. Um, they didn't have those. They didn't have baby formula. They didn't have you know, sanitary environments for people to give birth in. But here you have all these people who were safely delivered. Uh, they were born. And then their lives were preserved by the providential grace of God. And then they eventually found a wife. And he and his wife had children. And just from reading through this list, you can remember for several of those people, that was difficult to have children. And so the Lord enabled them to, to then conceive. And he watched over every detail of every one of these lives for thousands and thousands of years so that he could bring Jesus to earth, so that he could save us from our sins. I hope that encourages you that God uses everyday people and faithfully preserves them, and he delights to use everyday people like you and me. You know, from a New Testament perspective, we are the ends of the earth, right? You think about where Israel is, and God said to, to cause God's word to go spread over the ends of the earth, you know, go from Jerusalem to Samaria to Judea to all the ends of the earth. And here we are in countryside Illinois. This is the end of the earth from that standard. You know, the gospel has run wide and far. And here God has providentially watched over us, everyday normal people, everyday sinners even. But God delights to use us to do his will, to bear gifts to our neighbors, to watch over members while they struggle through the trials of life. God delights to use you. That should be tremendously encouraging when you read a genealogy like this. And then a third truth related to that one certainly is that they magnify, genealogies magnify God's faithfulness and grace and salvation. You think about the time and the detail involved in accomplishing God's saving plan. And so you would think about, well, maybe God basically got the earth spinning and then took his hands off it and got, you know, people just have babies and this just happens naturally and he's not involved in any of it. No, what we think theologically, what we know theologically, a way of thinking theologically, in other words, is to say God was involved in every single one of those details. And he brought all of this to bear so that a savior, the divine son of God, could come and save us. I read a story several years ago about a man who was living in Burundi, a very poor, one of the poorest countries in the world, uh, in Africa, a very poor country in Africa. And in the mid-1990s, there was a horrific genocide there. And this man named Dio uh, watched lots of his friends and family die in horrifying ways in this genocide and hid for his own life and just barely managed to escape through many sleepless nights in, in terrible conditions and made it to New York City, not knowing any English, and barely survived there. And then eventually, of course, learned English and, and wrote a story about it. And now he's back in Burundi, I believe. But what he said when he was sitting in a cathedral in New York describing what had happened during those awful days, terrifying days in Burundi in the mid-1990s, he said, you know, I believe in God. I believe God is good, but I believe God has been sleeping a lot lately. That's bad theology. The Lord never slumbers nor sleeps. 
scriptures tell us. Psalm 126 is one example of that. If God was sleeping during the genocide in Burundi in the mid-1990s, we need to assume he was sleeping while his own son was being crucified. If when something bad happens, it's because God has taken his hands off, all kinds of theological problems start to arise, is what we would say about that. If God wasn't sleeping during those bad times, he also wasn't sleeping during these normal times. What I'm simply saying is, look at the providence of God in causing the human race to progress from one generation to the next. And the Davidic seed, we could say, the seed of the woman, going all the way back to Genesis 3, advancing and being forwarded so that salvation could come through Jesus Christ. And so let me just tie this all together for you. And just, if you're a human, hopefully you have already asked this question in your mind. Who cares? What difference does this make? So what? That's the question you should answer when you're teaching the Bible. That's the question you should ask when you're reading the Bible. How does this help me love God, serve God, worship God, and serve other people? Like, what is a legitimate application of this passage? It's what we should ask with every passage we read. And so what I want to do is answer that question of how does this help me? And it's not a disrespectful question to ask, okay? The Bible is not just this sterile book we read. This is a good question for us to ask. Let me answer this in three ways, to, for three categories of people. So let me first address those who maybe are here today who don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. And my first comment to you specifically is we are so glad you're here. And we hope you'll come again next week. And we hope you'll ask us lots of questions. I'll be at the door afterwards. We'd love to answer any question you have about Christianity or anything we've had uh, go on in the service today, why we worship the way we do, or anything along those lines. But this passage is holding out hope to you by talking about Jesus as the Son of God. If you're not a Christian, if you have not repented of your sins, turned from your sins and seen the emptiness and futility of them, and put your hope only in Christ as your Savior, who is the only one who can save you, you can't save yourself. If you haven't done that, this passage is an invitation to you to come to me, Jesus would say, and find rest for your souls in the Son of God. If you're here as a Christian who is suffering, look at the grace in this passage and the faithfulness in this passage and be reminded that you are part of a bigger story that goes back thousands of years in God's plan. And, and remember, as you think about the bigger storyline of the world and how it long precedes you and will long last after you, think about the fact that that God is working graciously and faithfully in these circumstances. And so what you need right now is not merely a change of circumstances, though we like it when we get a change of circumstances and the bad things go away, but that's not your biggest need. Your biggest need isn't a cure or a raise or a new family member. Your biggest need is salvation and is God's transforming grace. So if you are saved, you need God to continue to transform you and sustain you. And this passage is a reminder to you that he gives that grace to you. How is it a reminder of that? Well, let's think about where else the Bible says that we are sons of God. 2 Corinthians 6 says that God will make you sons and daughters of the living God. That, that's you if you are in Christ. You are one of his children. Hebrews 2 says that God is bringing many sons to glory. He's drawing many sons and daughters to himself. 
And Revelation 21 says that to everyone who overcomes, God says, I will be your father and you will be to me a son. You will be his own child. This should be a buoy to you in your suffering. This truth is better, that you are a son of God is better than having a cure, having a pain removed, having a change of circumstances in your life. And if you're here as a Christian, third category, so non-Christians, Christians who are suffering, Christians who are sinning. If you're here and you're sinning in a particular way, maybe this past week you blew it and you know when and where and why and how and you can put all the pieces together and you can see it all in retrospect and say, I can't believe I did that, so stupid. Or maybe you're thinking, I am rationalizing the way I'm going to keep sinning or sin in some particular way in the near future. This passage is for you as well. This passage reminds us of the need to repent. Going back to the passage last week, that Jesus is holding a threshing fork in his hand and the chaff will be blown away, will receive judgment for their sins, for taking Christ lightly. Because we can't take sin lightly. And so I urge you not to. I urge you to take the Lord very seriously. And so perhaps you need to repent. But secondly, the fact that he's the Son of God for you sinning Christians, us sinning Christians, in other words, means that the Son of God came to save you. He came to deliver you from that sin. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke tells us. That's the theme of Luke. That God is fulfilling his plan by sending Jesus the Messiah to seek and to save that which was lost. And so the fact that Jesus is the Son of God means that he is here to deliver you as only he can, as only he is qualified to do. You don't have an incompetent leader like that expedition, expedition to the Amazon River in 1914. He came from heaven uniquely qualified to seek you and to find you and to save you. And maybe you need others to help you realize that you need forgiveness, that you are sinning. I want to say something that is not original to me, but I think is very important to say, that you are not the expert on you. You don't know all of your own spiritual needs. Other people might see the glaring blind spots in your life and you need to listen to them. I need to listen to them. So let other people disciple you, walk with you through the Christian life. This passage that Jesus is the Son of God should give us immense hope. Some of you are aware that for much of my life I've significantly struggled with asthma and it was especially excruciatingly bad from about 2015 to 2017. And in the middle of 2017, I was texting with our elders at our church in Alabama, really just in despair, and asking them to pray for me, feeling as low as low can be at that point, gasping for breath all day, every day, waking up three or four times a night to take all the medicine you can find just to struggle to go back to sleep so you can do it again a couple hours later. And this was my life for really several years, and to the point where... Uh, you know, if somebody came to the door, sometimes I couldn't get up to go to the door to see who it was because I couldn't breathe well enough to get to the door. Like, that's how paralyzing this asthma was for several years. So finally, I'm texting the elders in 2017 and saying, I, I need help. You know, I just, I'm in despair. I need the Lord's grace right now. And one of the elders texted me individually and said, you know, let me just recommend you to my doctor. I think he'll be a big help to you. Long story short, I realize I've told long stories today, but long story short is I went to this doctor and for the first time, I had a doctor who actually sat across from me and looked me in the eye and didn't have a clipboard there. He just sat there and counseled me, so to speak, and just listened and, and encouraged me 
And the one thing I came away with that day, I did not come away with any new prescriptions. The one thing I came away with that day was hope. That it doesn't always have to be this way. And you get in your car after something like that, and I, I wanted to cry. Thinking, I don't have to suffer this way the rest of my life. Am I willing to? Okay. If the Lord wants me to, if this is the lot he's given me, to gasp for breath the rest of my life, I'll take it, if that's what God has. But maybe it doesn't have to be this way. And that's what that doctor told me that day. Having hope is better than a change of circumstances. And this passage gives you hope that there is someone uniquely qualified to address your sin, to address your suffering. And so we invite you, friends, those in Christ, those outside of Christ, to come to the well of hope that is Christ, who is the Son of God. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we bless you for giving your Son, for his atonement, for the fact that he brings us near to you, making a way for us to you, that he is our brother, your your word tells us. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And so we thank you for his work in creating us and in saving us and for the promise that he will bring us all the way home. And we know he can do this because he is your son. And so we pray that we would worship him anew today. In Christ's name, amen.